Well, it's good to see everybody again. Good morning. Um, so this will be uh, part four, if you've uh, caught any of the other ones. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, each, each of these messages is kind of standalone and stuff, but I'll be referencing uh, a few of the things that I've talked about in the, uh, in the previous lessons, but uh, hopefully it'll be transparent to you. Um, but it's encouragement to see you guys, uh, everybody here. Uh, hopefully this will be encouraging to you. Um, my hope is that this will inspire you to kind of dig deeper, and um, there's, like Hal said, there's a wide, uh, wide variety of different areas to, to dig into, and it's going to be different for everybody in terms of what your interests are, and then who your sphere of influence is in terms of your ability to share your faith with other people around you, and uh, you know, ask questions, have good conversations, dialogue, share your faith, and also, um, you know, equip yourself and and uh, your children, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and how to defend the faith, because um, we actually have a lot going for us in, in terms of Christianity, especially when you uh, start looking at other other worldviews and other religions out there. And <clears throat> that's what I hope to kind of present today a little bit. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot, so I'm going to try to pack it in, uh, but I'm going to try to give you a couple tips, techniques on, on discipleship, how to approach it, how to think about it. Uh, then we're going to... Uh, I'm going to try to address a couple of the questions that I got from previous lessons. So one is addressing, you know, how should Christians approach uh, politics? How involved should we be? What should we do there? Uh, and then the second half will be evidence for the resurrection. Um, it's more than just more than just faith. Uh, Christianity and the resurrection, as Paul says, the entire Christian faith hangs on the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything else is uh, our, our faith is worthless basically um, and we're all still in our sins and we have no hope uh, so with that if you please uh, join with me in prayer uh, we'll go before the Father Lord thank you so much for this time thank you for these men uh, who've uh, taken time to come together to uh, encourage and equip each other in, in fellowship uh, pray that you bless this time help us to renew our minds uh, may your truth be proclaimed uh, pray that you would strengthen our faith inspire us Motivate us, give us a hunger and a thirst for your word, uh, your truth. Uh, help us to encourage one another uh, to be able to fulfill the purpose you have for our lives. That we be faithful witnesses and ambassadors uh, for your kingdom. Pray that we're sensitive to opportunities to share share your faith and continue to learn and grow. Um, uh, bless Hillsview and our time together in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. <coughs> All right. So with that, um, I thought it would be appropriate to start out with the uh, quote from Socrates. So Socrates, from, uh, Socrates, like Jesus, didn't actually write anything, but you know his disciples wrote things about him. Uh, and in the Apology, he's quoted as saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, so the Apology, just like apologetics, is the word for defense. And the, in Plato's Apology, Socrates is providing a defense because he's being accused of corrupting the youth, uh, and he ends up being sentenced to death uh, because basically the people in power didn't like what he was saying because he was challenging their authority. A lot of similarities there with, with Jesus. Um, kind of along that same vein, I would say the unexamined faith is not worth believing. Um, so I'd just like to challenge you to continue to, to grow, to learn, to ask questions, to investigate. Um, look into what other worldviews are saying, what other people are saying, what the current arguments are against Christianity or for other faiths, especially if it's relevant for 
for folks that you interact with on a regular basis, family members or coworkers or neighbors, whatever it may be, um, and examine kind of the assumptions and the, uh, the lines of argumentation that go along with it, where the strengths are and where the weaknesses are, and how we can effectively reach out to those folks. Um, so along those lines, um, just ask yourself, or do you have an answer if somebody asks you this question today? Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in Jesus? Or do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that everything in the Bible is true? And why? So the number one answer most uh, from multiple surveys that most people give is, well, I grew up in a Christian home. That's why I'm a Christian. You know, my parents are Christian. I'm a Christian. My grandma is a Christian. Um, but the second most common answer is, I had some sort of spiritual experience that led me to believe. And there's nothing wrong with those. Those are fine. But when you, when you start looking at Christianity, you know, is it really separate or different from other worldviews? Or is it, um, if you look at our society, we live in what is now described as postmodern, post-Christian, pluralistic, which basically means that, well, whatever's true for you is good for you, but, you know, don't try telling me I have to change what I believe, because I've got my own truth. Um, so that's kind of that postmodern, relativistic <coughs> truth model that's out there. Um, and so that's that's the world that we live in, and you're going to be encountering people uh, from different worldviews and, and different faiths. And the problem with these answers is that you'll hear the similar type thing from a Muslim, from a Buddhist, from a Mormon. Um, Mormonism, for example, if you have them come to your door and, and knock, I can almost guarantee you they're at some point they're going to say something to the effect of, "You just need to read the Book of Mormon." And you'll have a experience of a burning in the bosom that will convict you of the truth of what's in that book. Um, so it's, a lot of it's the same type of thing. So if somebody that's searching or you know looks at worldviews or different face, it's almost like ice cream. Well, you prefer strawberry and I like chocolate. That's fine, but you're not wrong because you like something other than me. So I, I, that's kind of what goes along with pluralism is. I think as most Americans believe that we're all created equal. We agree with that in our founding documents of, their, of our country. I think our founding fathers got that right. But the problem with our society lately is pluralism, which is equality of ideas, where all ideas are equal, all faiths are equal, we all kind of end up going to the same place, all religions basically say the same kind of thing. As, you know, That's kind of the message that's out there. The problem is it's not true. So what I, I think is a more appropriate answer, if somebody asks you why you're a Christian, I think a stronger response is be, because it's true. And a lot of people won't accept that. They'll think that's arrogant or narrow-sighted, uh, myopic, bigoted. But the thing about truth is it's exclusive. If something's true, then it's true. And the opposite is not true. And that's what happens with a lot of worldviews. So... You've got worldviews that are different, major religions, and they're different and they exist because they're fundamentally different in what they believe in terms of origin, meaning, morality, destiny, the nature of truth, the nature of reality. So what I hope to, to set up here, Christianity is true because we have trustworthy archaeology. For example, Latter-day Saints, there has been nothing that's been found that has validated 
the claims and the stories that are in the Book of Mormon. Nothing. They found nothing. They've gone and searched, and they found nothing. Whereas the archaeology for the Bible, what it's difficult because over thousands of years, things it's basically trash, things that are burned, leftover fractions, pieces of pieces of pieces that are left over. But what they have found, they've actually been surprised over and over again, even the skeptics, that actually everything that they have found has confirmed what's in the Bible. They haven't found anything archaeologically that has disproven or said that what's described in the Bible is not true. Um, revelation and prophecy. Uh, the fulfillment of revelation and prophecy is actually one of the primary means that Peter and Paul used to reach out to the Jews to show them through the scriptures just like Jesus did to show them through the Old Testament, here are the prophecies that were made about the Messiah, and here are all the things that Jesus has fulfilled. Over 320 prophecies about who the Messiah would be, Jesus fulfilled. 363. Right. Um, there's also universally accepted facts, so this is something that's probably not widely known um, for most people in the church. Uh, there are a lot of New Testament scholars that are skeptics, or atheists even, but I think you'll be surprised at the universally accepted what they say we know. Not that we think or there's a good chance, but minimal facts, historical facts that are, are basically accepted by everybody that's in a terminal degree that writes you know, for journals and academics. They study, they work in this area, and we'll go through some of those. And then the eyewitness testimony and evidence uh, so close to the events is incredible when you start to look at comparing it to other ancient literature and the wealth and the credibility, the reliability that goes along with what we have in our Bible, uh, along with the archaeological finds, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So when I say that a lot of New Testament scholars believe this now and they accept it, even skept very liberal skeptics, they will acknowledge that these things are true. That wasn't true in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. It was a lot of the recent archaeology that's happened since World War II that has confirmed a lot of this stuff since um, a lot of those areas have been opened up uh, to archaeological digs and sites and stuff like that, and they've, they've found a, a ton that's been confirmed, and then things like the Dead Sea Scrolls have confirmed that hey, what we actually have is still accurate, still matches what we expect, because one of the biggest attacks is that, oh, well, it's changed, it's been corrupted, you know, can't trust it, so we'll get into that a little bit. All right. But starting out with discipleship, uh, discipling one another, encouraging one another, making um, making us grow in our faith. Um, I like the Socratic method, which is why I reference uh, Socrates. So he he would get people to come to a realization of their own by asking them questions, challenging their assumptions, asking them why they why they believe what they believe, what they think is true. And I think that's really effective, especially for somebody from a non-believer or a non-Christian uh, perspective, because it's not offensive. If you come out with a genuine heart of humility and sincerity, you're just asking questions. You're trying to learn more about what, what somebody believes. And I, I firmly believe that most people, if they actually think that you care about them, that there's a relationship there, uh, they're more willing to listen and open, um, open up and speak about their doubts, about what they believe and why they believe it. So just asking questions is really effective, and it's not, it's not offensive as long as you're not aggressive in terms of like interrogating them, but um, it's, how you, it's, how, it's all about tone and how you go about doing it, right? So a couple questions you can do is um, a technique that I find, because I, I found that you know some, some Christians are like, oh, it's really awkward to like just jump into a you know, spiritual conversation. How do you, how do you get it going? Um, so I think news headlines 
recent current events is a, is a very easy way, because it's not offensive, to say, hey, did you hear about this that happened? Or I can't believe what happened with these folks. Um, so headlines are a lot of times built around sin, uh, death, uh, tragedy, you know, people are at a loss for, you know, things that are going on, you know, why, why is this happening? Well, then a lot of that stuff can lead into a spiritual conversation very quickly if you just start to touch on some of those concepts. So what do you, what do you think happens after you die? And, and then how that person responds is going to give you an idea about their worldview. Are they coming from a theistic perspective, atheistic, polytheistic, pantheistic? And just how they respond to that is going to, it's going to influence how you continue your line of questioning and, and how you approach them from where they're coming from and what's going to be effective in reaching them. And then just asking follow-up questions. Well, why do you think that's true? You know, what evidence or what have you read or, you know, makes you think that that's, that's correct? So again, always be curious and humble, and you're probably going to learn something. You might challenge what you believed or maybe something you've never thought about. So what's their perspective and why? And then always be looking at what assumptions, what's not being said. What's it, what, because a lot of times people jump, you know, like in school where in math where you had to show all your work, show all your steps, how do you got to the answer? When you're talking to somebody, you're not going to have that most of the time. People don't do their, you know, premise A, premise B, you know, logical conclusion. They'll just jump to what they believe is true without kind of doing some of the background work. So in order to go through discipleship, you need to, you have to be intentional. This is not something that's going to happen on its own normally, right? So that's why uh, talk about you need to be praying, thinking uh, about people in your life, people that you think might be open-minded, people that would be receptive to having a conversation. And most people in the United States consider themselves spiritual. They, they're, they're open to having spiritual conversations. God created a, a God-sized hole in everybody's heart. We all know that there's something wrong and that there's something missing and there's got to be something more than what we're experiencing here. And that's, that's not an accident. Yep, pray for those in your sphere of influence. Continue to read, study, think, uh, meditate, memorize, share, teach. Uh, one of the greatest ways to learn is to teach, so you want to prepare and get ready. Um, as Wes knows, as you're preparing to teach a lesson, uh, you learn way more than you have time to be able to share with folks, but it uh, just makes you grow that much more. Um, kind of a word of warning is uh, with apologetics, you can really get into some tangential topics and ideas, concepts, kind of get down in the, in the weeds and rabbit holes that can go all kinds of different directions. Um, but again, don't don't spend a lot of time majoring in the minors. Uh, what I mean by that is don't, don't waste your time arguing with somebody about things that really don't matter. And so that's why I'm going <clears> to <throat> focus today on evidence for the resurrection, because again, Christianity hangs completely on the resurrection. So we need to know if you're going to you know, start diving into one apologetics area, that's where I would start. What is all the evidence that's out there uh, for the resurrection? Because that's really what it hinges on. And we have freedom of Christ, so we don't have to agree on everything. So even within Christian circles, there's you know, disagreement over the age of the earth and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't matter as far as salvation goes. And again, you don't have to be an expert. Look at the apostles. Look who Jesus chose to start the church. These were not the highly educated, powerful people in society, right? So that is another piece of evidence. Just chose these average fishermen, tax collectors, you know, average Joes, and they were able to turn the world upside down. And um, 
I mean, that's evidence in itself, the existence of the church, why we're here, why we believe what we believe, uh, because it's amazing. It's a miracle. And again, it's a team sport, so you don't have to be an expert, but there are lots of other people that spend a lot of time researching these things. You just need to take the time to go out and read and study and you know, talk to other folks that have, um, are also involved. So it's a team sport. And uh, <clears throat> along those lines, Amos 3.3 says, do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? And uh, the primacy of, of God's scriptures, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And in Colossians 4, 5 through 6, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. All right, so when when you're looking at, okay, how do I reach out to people? Who, you know, how do you pick who, who you're going to spend time talking to? You can think of it as a, think of it as a courtroom. A lot of people have seen God's Not Dead, God's Not Dead too. Um, so I think they do a really good job in that movie, just presenting uh, kind of a good way of thinking about the evidence that's out there. And uh, if you know any lawyers, most trials, criminal trials or whatever, are won or lost at jury selection. So who they choose, you know, they do the voir dire, choosing who's going to be on the jury, who's not going to be on the jury. So how you answer those questions can determine whether or not you're going to be on the jury or not. Um, so if you look at a spectrum of, of folks that are that are out there in your sphere of influence, you put them on a scale, you know, from one to four. So number one being a Christian believer, someone that has already believes, and I still think we should reach out to those people because um, there are still things that they haven't heard, still need to learn, questions they have, um, but they're on they're on your side. Uh, a number two would be a doubting, doubting believer. You know, somebody that's got questions, that's heard, you know, conflicting views, and they're not, they're not quite sure. They're maybe sitting on the fence, and uh, if they don't get their questions answered, maybe they're going to become a three. So, if anybody has kids or grandkids or uh, brothers, family members, I'm sure you, you, you know, everybody in this room probably knows somebody that fits in that camp. And then you've got the skeptical non-believer, number three is what we'll call it. And uh, so these are people with with way more questions and way more doubts, and they don't believe because they have unanswered questions. So it's, it's an intellectual, moral, or emotional uh, problem for them. And that's how um, you can view apologetics, is it's, it's a way for you to remove the obstacles for somebody that's a barrier to faith, and God can work through you, and you can see the Holy Spirit work in their life uh, to come to faith or strengthen their faith. Um, and then number fours, um, Personally, I don't recommend engaging with, with number fours for the most part. Uh, all, all you can do is pray at that point. Uh, if they're hostile, you uh, sometimes it gets pretty nasty, and they're not open to hearing the truth, they're not open to hearing evidence, they're not open to hearing facts. Um, so my recommendation is just for those folks, just pray for them, pray for God to work in their lives, um, that they'll have a road to Damascus moment, you know, where God will slap them upside the head. Um, and that's another piece of evidence. Um, so if you, anybody's heard of Jay Warner Wallace, he's a cold case detective, athe strong atheist, atheist father. He actually came to faith because uh, as a cold case detective, he used a lot of the, the detective evidence gathering 
uh, techniques and looking at the Gospels, reading the Gospels reminded him of eyewitness testimonies and the way that they're constructed, the embarrassing details, um, the fact that all the facts don't match up exactly is actually confirmation uh, that the, the Gospel messages uh, as eyewitness testimony are valid because that's exactly what you would expect to find if you had eyewitness testimony. Not everything's going to line up exactly. All right, so that's the whole discipleship piece. Now we'll roll into the next uh, question. Uh, should Christians be involved in politics? So there's several different perspectives and views on this. Um, <clears throat> there's some people that think that government should compel people to believe. Other people say, well, it's not my, post, it's not my place to impose beliefs on others. Um, some people think, well, politics is just a distraction from the mission of the church. We should just evangelize. Uh, so I, I don't want to waste my time getting involved. Um, there's other folks that are really on, on the whole separation of church and state. Um, so government should exclude religion, and religion shouldn't have any place in the public square. And then there's folks that are like, no, we just need to do evangelism, and everything will be fine. Don't worry about politics. And then other people are like, no, we need to do politics. You know, don't worry about evangelism. If you get the light that the law is right, you know, everything will work out. So in Matthew 22, uh, verses 20 through 21, um, you remember this, I referenced this earlier, but uh, Jesus basically delineated here that there's a difference between the civil realm, what the government's in charge of, and the religious realm. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God, things that are God's. So that's, that's a way to view and understand. There are different realms, different roles and responsibilities, but God instituted the church and he instituted government as different means of restraining evil in the world. So as far as whether or not the government should compel people to believe, in uh, Luke 9, verses 52 through 54, Jesus actually refused to compel people to believe in him. You know, the disciples are basically telling Jesus, hey, we should... You know, call down fire and brimstone on these folks, and then we'll, we'll get some people to, to get on board with, with the game plan. And Jesus rebuked them and said, no, that's not how it works. Because just like we talked about with um, you know, the problem of evil, genuine faith can't be forced. Just like love can't be forced. If it's forced, then it's not faith and it's not love at that point. Um, when Jesus was uh, before Pontius Pilate in John 18... You know, he said his kingdom was not of this world. Um, again, compelling. He said his servants would fight for him if it was. Um, and I think that just goes towards, um, again, another piece of evidence that Jesus didn't look to compel people to believe. It's, it's, a, it's a choice that everybody has. Um, along those lines, though, the government should be in place to protect the freedom of religion. Because um, there's also dangers if the government is able to compel say, compel people to be Christians, well, if the government changes, different people are in power, they could compel you to be a different faith as well. Um, and the government brings the power of the sword. So that, that can be dangerous, as we've seen around the world throughout history. Um, so the flip side of that is, well, should government completely exclude religion then? Uh, the problem with that is you, um, it's difficult to differentiate or understand the spirit of the law or why that law is put in place and where that comes from. Uh, versus the actual content or letter of the law. Uh, there's potential to override the will of the people um, and will tend towards freedom from religion, which is where a lot of people want want to go, as opposed to freedom of religion, the ability to freely express that as 
written in the Bill of Rights. Um, this interpretation has never been voted on by Americans. It's basically been decided by judges and implemented that way. Uh, it restricts uh, freedom of religion and speech. And then it also, <clears throat> by taking religion completely out of the government, again, like the problem of evil, we talked about a moral law. Where does that come from? A moral law giver. If we don't have that, there's no means by which to differentiate good and evil. So how is the government going to determine who to punish and who to, who to praise or reward? How are they going to make those determinations if we don't have a foundation to differentiate good and evil? So should we be involved in politics? I would say absolutely. Um, so 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 13, and 1 Peter 2 all talk about how the church and government were established to restrain evil. Um, and if you look through history, Christians have positively influenced society via government means. So in the Roman Empire, they ended the gladiator battles. Uh, they instituted uh, prison reforms, stopped human sacrifice, outlawed pedophilia, granted property rights to women, banned polygamy here in the United States, abolished slavery as well. Uh, Christianity was also <coughs> critical in promoting compulsory education because only through education and literacy can you read the scriptures for yourselves and understand God's word, which is critical importance. Uh, as well as setting up most of the institutions in the United States all started out as Christian theological centers. Uh, Declaration of, of Independence, Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are all, they all emanate from a Christian worldview. Um, no other worldview could have conceived of these documents once you understand the fundamentals that were created by a creator endowed with certain inalienable rights, there's inherent value in life, um, and these things should be protected. Only the Christian worldview can, would, would have allowed for these documents to come forward. And you, you look at history, and America really is unique in, in terms of the government we have. And uh, personally, I think that's one of the problems we have right now is some people are voting or <laughs> advocating for a completely different system that is incompatible with our founding documents. Um, and we have a lot of freedoms here, and sometimes you don't know what you have until you lose it. So how, do you, how, how should you be involved with, with politics? Um, I'll just basically leave it at, you need to vote with your biblical worldview in mind. And there are certain non-negotiables, um, doctrines that are, that are clear throughout the Bible in terms of how you should vote and support. Um, so vote for candidates that support uh, these, these types of ideas, protecting the unborn, innocent life. If the government doesn't care about life at its most innocent point, then why would they care about you at any other point in your life? Um, uphold marriage between one man and one woman. Uh, protect religious freedom. And Christianity is really the only worldview that um, can protect religious freedom. Islam won't because it's a concept built around Sharia law, um, which is fundamentally in opposition to our, our system here. Um, your candidates should also acknowledge God's existence. Um, so every year the, the parties come up with a platform in terms of what they support. And uh, there's one party that vocally uh, denied God's existence multiple times. Um, so if they, if they don't even acknowledge God, then I don't think they deserve our support. Because uh, there's blessings that come out of obedience. And, and I mean, why, why do a lot of non-believers send their kids to Christian public school? Um, um, Christian education because they they still see the benefits of it even if they don't believe it. 
so when you vote make sure you're looking at how you're how those candidates are going to govern on the big issues and you can look at matthew twenty three um put this picture up here just to show you an example um to kind of drive drive it home so everybody know what this picture is it's a korean peninsula so you got koreans on both sides um one side obviously at night is filled with light um i mean what's what's the major difference between north and south politics prosperity and right so in the south they have political freedom they have economic freedom in the north um they have a dictator communist that rules controls the information they can't they can't change the system from within and uh, there's no prosperity there's no freedom and it doesn't have to be that way but if you get under that kind of system are you going to be able to share the gospel in north korea is that allowed is that are you free to share the gospel so for christians that say that politics don't matter they don't care about the gospel because if, you, if you're not free to share the gospel and truth like we, we can do right here you can't do the, you can't do what we're doing right here in north korea it's illegal it's a lot not allowed they'll, they'll put you in prison or they'll kill you they'll kill you that's what happened to my uncle he uh left a bible in north korea and they found out and they kept him there for um good four or five months so yeah. it does happen yeah it's real so it does make a difference so anybody that thinks that uh well you know i don't need to be involved you know my vote doesn't count no it does count if every christian voted we can make significant changes to our our system the problem is a lot of christians have been standing by idly not being involved in the process and what that does is like the quote that's attributed to Edmund burke i don't know if he actually said it but you know all that all that's required for evil to prosper is for good men to stand by and do nothing so as you can see from this list laws affect everything every area of your life or if there aren't laws that affect it now they can depending on what system is set up so it's important to be involved well i think i'm out of time i don't know how much longer you guys want to hang out go for it keep going <laughs> okay i'll try to go through fast then all right if you guys are if you guys are interested in staying if you get up and leave that's fine uh, I'm, gonna keep, I'm gonna keep rolling so i won't be offended but all right so <clears throat> most important thing if you're gonna if you're gonna, you know if you're in an elevator stuck with somebody you know what, what what are you going to tell them to share the gospel what you know what's your what's your three minute spiel what, what's the biggest thing you're going to drive home your, your strongest strongest point that you're going to get somebody with so what's the most important question anybody has to answer in their life right who do you say that i am and who said that jesus right jesus to peter and peter has the right answer you know he said you are the messiah the son of the living god matthew 16. So this is the most important question anyone is going to, have to ever answer. What do you say about Jesus? That's where the division happens. There's all kinds of other doctrines and all kinds of other things. But again, who do you say Jesus was? Did he actually die? Did he rise from the dead? Is the resurrection real? And we have we have a lot of evidence to actually say that that's true. So if you remember this, you know, talk about Rabbi Zacharias and how you define a worldview. <clears throat> so origin, meaning, morality, destiny, big questions. Yeah, everybody has to answer and everybody believes in one way or another. Although it doesn't always make sense. So if you start digging down into what people believe and why they believe it, 
Um, you're going to find inconsistencies, maybe even, even what you believe. Yeah, I know I have. Um, so is it logically consistent? Is there empirical adequacy? Is there evidence? Is it experientially relevant? You know, does it match up with what I, how I experience life? Does it correspond to reality? And is there coherence, not only in the individual answers, but when you put all the answers together, does it still make sense? All right. So there's a lot of evidence that demands a verdict, and there's actually a great book, and that's what it's called, Evidence that Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell. Pick it up. There's, there's a ton of great info in there if, uh, if you haven't seen it before. <coughs> so I've I, I talked to several people, and they have a certain standard where they are requiring proof that God exists, or proof that this is true. Absolute 100% proof rarely exists in most things in life, and that's not how people live their lives anyway. So from a legal standpoint, again, that courtroom analogy, you have you know, beyond reasonable doubt for criminal trials. That's not really the level of certainty we're, we're looking for here either. If you want to compare it to legal jargon, preponderance of the evidence, which is just over 50%. Like there's enough evidence to think, yeah, more than likely, this is the best, best explanation for, for what, what's gone on here. So along with that, you're going to hear people say, you know, the Bible's not reliable. Um, if anybody says that, they don't know what they're talking about. Because it is. It's incredibly reliable. It's the most reliable historical document in history, uh, especially from that time. So what you're looking for from ancient literature, at, at, at worst, if you don't believe the Bible is divinely inspired, at worst, it's a piece of ancient literature. And skeptics will acknowledge that. You know, all that's required for that is it's old and it's, you know, got words written on it basically, right? But for something to be reliable, the key things you're looking for is an early report near the time of the, when the events happened, an eyewitness testimony. Now, eyewitnesses can be wrong, but they were there. They saw it, right? So we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7. Um, and even skeptics, New, New Testament scholars that don't, don't believe they're not Christians will acknowledge 1 Corinthians 15 is a valid... Um, piece of scripture you can use to argue from because they're going to use it against you as well because they think there's there's a lot of good there because we actually pin it to a time period. So a lot of people say, well, the Bible, you know, it was, it was corrupted and changed and, you know, all these things have changed for, for a long time. But 1 Corinthians 15, you can actually pin down to a very specific time in, in uh, when it existed because at the time this was, this was written, there was a, the ruler was there and they only ruled for one year. So we know that while Paul was here, it was 51 to 52 AD. Um, and there's more on that, but uh, you just trust me on that. You can look it up yourself if you, uh, if you want more info. But <clears throat> Now one of the interesting things about 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul, is the scholars are looking at the text and they can actually tell that this is a creedal statement that was made within months of when the, when the resurrection actually happened. And it starts at verse 3 and goes to verse 7. So what Paul says is what I preached to you is what I received of most of highest importance. <clears throat> and then it goes on, For I delivered you the first importance of what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So I'll stop there, but basically, this is a creedal statement that was that was codified, was shared with Paul, and now he's sharing what had already been shared with him. 
as far as the timeline goes with Paul, they think the road to Damascus happened one, two, maybe three years after Jesus' resurrection, right? So he wasn't, um, Saul, you know, became Paul. Um, so even with that timeline, by that point, these creedal statements had already been in place, which means that there were a lot of witnesses that saw this event, and they had already established this belief, and there were thousands of people that came to faith in Jesus Christ, thousands of Jews. Now, if people are like, well, if I, if, if I was going to corrupt this and go back and change and say, well, you know, create this myth for people to believe in, one, I would have just said Jesus spiritually rose, and he rose, you know, thousands of miles away in some other continent, because it can't be verifiable. But they were actually appealing to the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus die. So if these people are, are proclaiming this, there are people that are alive that are there, just like he says, he's appealing to the eyewitnesses that saw this happen, and say, you saw this happen. He's appealing to the actual people that were there. So if it wasn't true, it, it should have died right there, because people would have been, well, no. You know, here's the body right here, or he didn't actually die, or, you know, the disciples stole the body, or whatever. So there's all kinds of naturalistic theories that came out, and most of those naturalistic explanations, no New Testament scholars actually believe in, because there's no evidence for it. Um, when I say it's historically reliable, so if you want to compare it to other books of antiquity, Here's just a, a snapshot picture of some of the other things that are out there. So the closest thing, these numbers have been updated for maybe from what you've heard, because over time they've actually found more manuscripts and stuff. Um, so the Iliad, for example, from Homer, there's approximately about 1,800 different manuscripts, copies, mostly fragments. For a lot of these, there's a lot of fragments with like a couple lines. But even the, the, the date that we have for the Iliad, the manuscript is over 1,000 years after when Homer lived. For Herodotus, the father of history, we have 109 copies slash fragments over 350 years after it happened. Plato, 210 to 275. Thucydides, we only have eight copies, and it's over 1,100 years after he lived, after the events of, of when the manuscripts that we have. Um, Julius Caesar, uh, again, 1,500 years, and you never hear anybody questioning, you know, was Julius Caesar really a person? Was Alexander the Great really a person? You know, Socrates? You don't hear people saying, well, Socrates wasn't real. Um, but they get really fired up about Jesus. So if you don't think there's a spiritual war going on, you just look at this and you're like, why, why are people getting so upset about Jesus? You know, the weird thing is when you talk to Hindus, you know, I don't believe in unicorns. But I don't devote most of my life being angry about unicorns, right? But you meet a lot of, you meet atheists, and they are really, really angry at God for something that they don't believe exists. But you compare all those, which are somewhat, somewhat contemporary, at least in the same time frame of history, and the New Testament, we have over 24,000 copies of copies. Now, not the originals, but copies of copies. And then with the Dead Sea Scrolls, that kind of validated that, hey, what we actually have, the entire book of Isaiah, is exactly what it was in the Qumran Scrolls. Amen. Um, God preserves his word, and it's a miracle. 66 different books written over 1,500 years, three different continents, 40 different authors, and the coherence of the message that lasts throughout the entire Bible is nothing short of miraculous. You can't get PhDs that work in the same field to agree as much as the Bible does. And again, the, the, the correspondence in time, when those are written, the, now these are, these are the liberal dates of when skeptics believe. So Mark is about 10 years after 
and 65 years later is John. And that's, people pretty much agree based on that. And a lot of the other dates, so, so like Luke, Luke includes a lot in the Gospel and then the Book of Acts, and um, they're pretty confident on the dates because significant things that happened were not included in Acts, such as the destruction of the temple, Paul's death. You know, Luke traveled around with Paul, and he, if he was writing that after Paul's death, you think he would have included that. Um, and then the destruction of the temple, that he probably would have included that because that was a significant prophecy that Jesus made, that the temple would be destroyed. So that would just build your case more. So fairly confident all that stuff was written and happened before 70 AD, which we know through other historical sources as well. So it's, it's, a, it, it's embarrassing how much more credibility and reliability we have for the Bible than anything else. So anybody that says that it's not a reliable text, again, they haven't actually done their own work. Uh, fulfilled prophecy is another huge, huge way of uh, speaking to mes- Jews to become Messianic Jews. Um, and the evidence here is just amazing. So Psalm 22, Daniel 9, Isaiah 53, those are just a couple of significant passages that specifically talk about the prophecy of, of the Messiah. So Psalm 22, you read through this. Um, there's been some confusion. I think some people, like my, um, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and they're like, well, how, you know, was Jesus being separated from God at that point? You know, he's God, but how, how does that work? How does that happen? Um, the way I think about it is he was basically telling people, this prophecy is fulfilled right now. It's kind of like if I said, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? People know what I'm referencing. In the same way the Jews knew, or the Jews should have known, by knowing their scriptures, what he was saying here. He was referencing Psalm 22 and that this is being fulfilled. So you read through this, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. So the American Medical Association has looked at, you know, crucifixion and how that actually affects the body. You know, when you're asphyxiated, your lungs will fill with liquid, and when he was pierced, um, at the time, John didn't really understand what was going on, and they didn't for, for thousands, thousands of years until we had the medical technology to understand what was happening. But it's described as blood and water being poured out from Jesus' body. Um, that's exactly what it says. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He said he, he thirsted. Um, he was thirsty on the cross. Um, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Now that's a prophecy that there's no way that Jesus could have made that happen. He's like, no, no, no. You can't take all my clothes. You have to divide them up and cast lots. You know, you, you can't make that happen. You can't decide where you're born. You can't decide to be born of a virgin. You know, those things are outside your control. You can't be decide where, where, where your uh, bloodline comes from. Um, so you start adding up the, all of those prophecies and the probabilities of that happening for one person to fulfill even a handful of those. It, it, it's next to impossible. One million to the 13th thought. <laughs> it's just, it's not going to happen. It's way outside any realm of actual possibility. Um, Isaiah 53, it's a suffering servant. Um, if there's any anybody from the Jewish faith, just ask them how they interpret Isaiah 53 and what that means. And if they see any correlation between the story of Jesus. Because that Isaiah 53 um, totally shows the picture of the cross and Jesus' uh, sacrifice for us. And then Daniel 9, 24, 27. Um, I don't have time to go into it right now, but this is, this is pretty cool. You look at this prophecy, and it prophesies to the day of when 
the Messiah would, would arrive. And you calculate it out, it's 476 years <clears throat> to the day, and that's the day of the triumphal entry when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. To the day. Incredible. Um, so Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus. Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus. And again, we know that what we have is true because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we know that those these books are accurate and they haven't changed. And these prophecies were made hundreds of years before Jesus came. Incredible. All right, so I told you I'd get to this. So minimal facts, this was set up uh, an approach by Gary Habernas. So these are things that New Testament scholars all agree on. Jesus died by crucifixion. There's, there's like the swoon theory out there that, well, maybe he didn't really die. No. Roman guards would be put to death if they botched a, a crucifixion. His disciples had experiences where they believed that the appearance of resurrected Jesus and it dramatically changed their lives. Followers were so convinced of what they saw that they endured torture and death for their beliefs. That's, that's established. Nobody's arguing that that didn't happen. The story of the resurrection is proclaimed very early. Like I talked about, 1 Corinthians 15, we, we know the exact date, and this was already established. Some people say six months, some say 18 months. Still, within a couple years, the creed of Jesus' deity, death, resurrection, fundamentally um, spread the word out to everybody. Thousands of Jews came to, came to believe in Christ um, short, shortly after the resurrection. Before Saul's conversion, Christian creeds of his Deity, death, and resurrection were established. And then James and Paul both converted because of their experience with the risen Jesus. <clears throat> now the reason that that's significant is you had people that were enemies, antithetical to Jesus, and they converted based on their experience. They, they completely swung what they believed and what they did with the rest of their lives, and they ended up dying for what they believed. So with some, just, that's just some of the evidence. There's a ton more. But what is the most reasonable explanation, given those facts that all the scholars agree, yes, they will concede all those things to be true. So you have the swoon theory, Jesus may not have actually died. The disciples stole the body. So inherent with that explanation is that the body was not in the tomb. It's a given. Nobody says that the body was in the tomb or that the tomb was not empty. So you have to deal with that. So where did the body go? Mass hallucinations is another one. People are like, oh, they were so emotionally distraught. You know, they just, they saw Jesus. Okay, well, the thing is about hallucinations, they're individual events. There is no psychological story or evidence of a mass hallucination being persistent enough and not to the point where people would die for what they said they saw. That just has never happened. It doesn't happen. Same thing with the swoon theory. If Jesus didn't actually die, he would have needed significant medical care uh, to recover. Even if... the at the outside check, he was beaten with 39 lashes. You know, one more, it would kill most people. And then, you know, Pontius Pilate was surprised that he was already dead so early and none of his bones were broken. But if you went through the torture that's that suspected in the Passion or anything similar to that, it's no surprise that he died on the cross because of the excruciating pain that is involved with that. And that's the other amazing thing is that God came into an exact time in history where one of the most embarrassing, humiliating, painful means of execution was, was implemented. Oh, and by the way, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, those were both written before crucifixion even existed. So they're describing a process of killing somebody that didn't even exist at their time. Even the most skeptical critics 
have basically given up any naturalistic theory. You ask them, and they're like, well, you know, I don't know, I just don't want to believe. I'll give you your facts, but I, I don't know what the answer is. It's basically what, what the current consensus is among liberal New Testament scholars that don't believe. So the only other possibility is that Jesus' resurrection actually happened, and he appeared to the disciples and hundreds of other people over a period of 40 days, and they, 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 they all saw him. Now, if you were before, you know, if this evidence was presented in a, in a courtroom and you're the jury, what's the most reasonable explanation? Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead. And it's not a bad, you know, so if the evidence is so good, why don't people believe? It's not because of a lack of evidence. It's not because, if you listen to other people from other worldviews defend their faith or tell you why they believe what they believe, Christian apologetics is actually fairly impressive and, and philosophers. We have some really smart, bright folks that have a lot of impressive lines of argument, multiple, like, here's my 12 points why I believe what I believe. You don't get that from other faiths. You don't. It basically comes down to, well, yeah, you're wrong, or you're, I don't believe that, or whatever. It, 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 it's like a playground argument. Some people, um, the other big, big thing is people won't accept the New Testament because it includes miracles, and they're like, well, miracles don't happen. Um, well, I would just say, look around you. Life is a miracle. The fact that there's a universe is a miracle. You look at the fine-tuning argument, all the, all the universal constants between the magnetic force, strong weak, nuclear force, gravity, the ratios at the beginning of the creation of the universe are so finely tuned and there's such a small margin for error that if that was, if any of those ratios were off, life would not exist, period. There shouldn't be anything. And yet life persists. So the, big, the biggest thing is people have some sort of emotional, volitional, um, or possibly intellectual reason, but that's maybe just because they haven't present, been presented with the evidence. And it just comes down to people don't want to believe. They don't want to bend their knee. They want to be their own God. They want to do what they want. They don't want to have somebody tell them what to do. They don't want to be accountable for their actions. It really comes down to that. So faith in Jesus, is, it's a trust relationship built on the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to convict you and turn you. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying apologetics is like you're going to win people over with arguments because it's not necessarily true, but it is an awesome way to, to strengthen your faith and, and have reasons to why you believe what you believe and equip, equip, equip others when they come up with those questions and objections and, and doubts. We have a lot going for Christianity. So don't underestimate the role that you have in clearing the uh, obstacles in somebody else's journey. That's all I have. Thanks for your time. Thanks for staying. Um, love you guys. Wish you the best. Um, I love talking about this stuff, so we can uh, talk more later. And if, if there is interest in a study or doing something like that, we can definitely do that, because uh, there is so much to, to talk about and delve into. So uh, thanks again. God bless. Take care.